0: Welcome to episode two of the Retro Football Network podcast. I'm Gary. Thanks again for being here today. I hope you enjoyed episode one. If you didn't hear it, you can catch up with it. It is available still. That was with Ellis James talking about Wales and his love of Swansea City, amongst other things. Today, my guest is someone whose voice will probably be familiar to a lot of you because of his work on the radio. He's also a very, very passionate football supporter and an extremely talented musician. So episode two is with Ian Danta. A big welcome to Ian Danter, who's joining us today for episode two of Retro Football Network podcast. Ian, thanks for being here today.
1: No problem at all, Gary. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks very much, Ian. Now, for those people who know you, they'll know your links to a certain football club others who don't know you they'll be very interested to find out which football team you support so I want to start off with that straight away today I think it's fair to say that you've got Birmingham City in the blood
1: it's a hereditary disease that's been passed down from generation to generation my granddad and my dad were both big blue noses and in actual fact my my granddad's brother, my great uncle Jack Danter, was very well known around the club from the, the 50s right the way through to the, the 70s. He was known as Jack the Hat. And he oh, was, right. okay. He was a guy, he used to wear a trilby hat, a bit Arthur Daly-esque, you know, but my great uncle Jack was um, a bit of Jack of all trades, funnily enough, around Birmingham. Uh, okay. one minute he'd be sweeping the terraces, one minute he'd be helping out at the turnstiles. He sort of did a myriad of jobs, for the club that he loved so much, so um, there was no way I was ever going to choose my choice no. of football club. That was predetermined as I emerged into the world as the sixties became the seventies. So, when did you first go to Birmingham? That would have been late nineteen seventy four. So I would have been six years of age. Wow. We lost to Stoke City. Um, oh no! On your first first time. First time, well, Jimmy Greenoff had not long left Birmingham to go to Stoke, and I'm, I'm he scored that day, just to rub it in uh, yeah. and give me a perfect early lesson in what it's like to support Birmingham. The law of the X struck us many, many times yeah. since then. But I can remember vividly the the, the strength of the colours, the royal blue of the Birmingham, the red and white of Stoke. Yeah, um, the smell of the cigarette smoke and the you know, onions in the air and everything. It was um, yeah, as as everyone would say, you 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 walk up those steps from the concourse into the main stand I sat in that day. And yeah, you just fall in love at that very moment with what you're presented with. Yeah, I had the same experience at my
0: first game as well. The same with the the minute you walk up the steps, that's it, you're done. You're fully grown, yeah. that's it, it's it's finished, life will never be the same again. Now you talked about memories of that first game. You can remember Jimmy Greenhouse. What about from a Birmingham point of view? What type of players were in the team that
1: day? Well, we not long sold Bob Latchford, unfortunately, to Everton. Of
0: course, yeah.
1: Um, he was part of, and he's a local. You know, Bob was a you know a local guy, and he was part of a fearsome front three with Trevor Francis and Bob Hatton, and things were changing. Kenny Burns. Would have been a striker by that point um, he was develop- developing a relationship with Trevor. Howard Kendall had come to Birmingham as part of the Latchford deal and Howard was coming towards the end of his playing career, but struck up a really good understanding with Trevor Francis on the pitch. having arrived, you had Joe Gallagher at center half uh, terrific center half. Alan Campbell in central midfield. pretty sure Gordon Taylor was still there.:
0: Yeah yeah Gordon
1: flying down the left wing holding onto the the cuffs of his long sleeve blue shirt as he ran um, so there were some real characters in that birmingham side that it's good players
0: that- as well there's some really good side there some good players yeah well, it was it Kendall was a was first coming to
1: the end but it was a first division side you know it was a top tier side at that time yeah uh, i mean admittedly most of my life has been spent watching birmingham in a lower tier than yeah the top flight, but certainly those early days, there were um, FA Cup semi-final defeats to Leeds, I think in the early seventies and more heartbreakingly to Fulham in 1975, when we were set for a second replay uh, and then a calamitous mix up at the back with Dave Latchford and a a centre half meant that Fulham scored the winner with 30 seconds to go, you know, before a replay would have kicked in again. Because so, Fulham
0: were a second division side
1: as well, weren't they, at the time? That's right, yeah. They were. More, so, uh, you know, the, the smart money was on Birmingham to meet West Ham in the final, and it it uh, obviously it wasn't to be. Um, so, again, that was another early lesson for, I would have been still six at that time, yeah. about, you know, this club will, uh, you know, lead you down the garden path and then smack you around the chops when you least expect it.
0: Now, of course, during that time, somebody you've already mentioned who sadly passed away recently is Trevor Francis. I imagine he must have been one of your first heroes.
1: So much so that um, me, like many other small lads in Solihull, um, bought uh, a blues top from Ray Hitchcock's sports shop in the town centre and made sure we had number eight ironed onto the back because that was Trevor's number. And I believe that there was a shortage of number eights Uh, to iron onto these shirts at Ray Hitchcock's because so many kids around Sully Hull wanted a blues top and they wanted number eight on the back. Because, of course, this is the days long before names were on the back of shirts. Yeah, exactly.
0: It wasn't common at all, was it?
1: But players had their uh, regular number and and Trevor was number eight. And so everyone knew if you had number eight on on the back of a Birmingham top. They knew who you were trying to be. And everybody wanted to be Trevor.
0: I don't think... Um, a lot of people appreciate how good he was and how young he was at the time because he came through was he 16 I think
1: when he came through 16 yeah in 1970 was when he made his debut um, scored four goals against Bolton I think Um, I I think he scored something like 15 goals in his first 16 games yeah incredible prolific was he in the early days that the video printer on grandstand, I think they took to saying, and Trevor Francis did not score for Birmingham. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was more news than it being not news. Um, but yeah, uh, he was incredibly quick. Um, he could score, could assist, had an understanding with players around him. I mentioned his understanding with Howard Kendall think he had a great understanding with Kenny Burns as well, although the two I don't think got on particularly well on a personal level. I think they really appreciated each other's strengths. Probably there's different a,
0: characters, Ian, I imagine.
1: Yeah, there's a great game that match of the day cameras were at at Filbert Street in 1976 when Birmingham beat Leicester by six goals to two on a frozen pitch. Um, and Kenny Burns scored a hat-trick that day. Which earned him a TR7 car, a local car dealer who promised a hat-trick to a wow, triumph. Yeah. And uh, Kenny scored the hat-trick, but Trevor scored uh, a brilliant volley from a free kick, the, the best work goal of the of the game. Um and yeah, we had Trevor at Birmingham being as brilliant and as quick and as nimble as he was for nine years, which is something I should be eternally grateful for.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course. And as I said, a lot of people don't always appreciate, I mean, I'm 46, so I remember him still. It was in Italy when I started watching football back in 85. I think he was at Sampdoria then, I think. But obviously a lot of people who are a bit older remember after they got into football after Italian 90. And of course, he was at, he'd been at QPR and Sheffield Wednesday as a player manager. They remember like an older player who still had it, who still could do it. He still had the ability. But I don't think they appreciate that if he'd have been around today at 16, the complete hype around him would have been incredible. And
1: imagine I And
0: mean, We had it with Wayne Rooney at 16 and that, but well, you we, imagine we, Francis. We, hey.
1: we have a perfect example in Birmingham's recent modern history with yes, Jude Bellingham. Exactly. A prodigious talent like that. But we didn't hold on to Jude for nine years, no. nor were we ever likely to. It was always no. going to be the case that after the brilliant first full season that he had, that somebody was going to come in for him because there was just so much noise so again that makes me grateful for the fact that we kept Trevor at the club for nine years and you know I got to see four or five of those years as a supporter going down to the ground um so yeah the 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 noise around him if there was a Trevor nowadays would be would be extraordinary
0: can you can you remember obviously as a child starting to understand that he was leaving and how enormous the fee was when he went for one million to Nottingham Forest in 1979.
1: Oh, no, I I remember, I was 10 years of age, so I I remember being, having that mortified feeling of a 10-year-old who doesn't necessarily understand how lucky we were to have kept him. Um, But I can tell you this, within a couple of months of him leaving, there won't have been a single Birmingham fan that wasn't jumping for joy watching him head the winner for Forest in that, European Cup final against Malmo uh, because all Blue Noses were kind of living their lives vicariously through our hero. Yeah, of course. Yeah, And watching him do something in a club game that we simply couldn't offer him. We couldn't offer him European football. No. And he was only ever eligible for the final, having signed for Forrest. Um that's the way the eligibility worked in, in those times. He couldn't play in the semi-final. That's right. He didn't, yeah, he didn't play in the first, yeah, exactly. The quarter yeah. final that's right. in semi-final. Yeah. Yeah. So he had to wait uh and then hope that Brian Clough would pick him for the final. I think he picked him on the wing as well. He he played Woodcock and and with um up front. So uh Bertles, rather, not we Yeah, Gary Bertles, yeah. yeah. Gary Bertles. So yeah, uh, you know, we were. Uh, as you know, where's our next hero going to come from? As a as a ten year old boy, uh, uh, we found one fairly swiftly. In that the the Francis money was spent on players like Colin Todd mm-hmm. and Frank Worthington and Archie Gemmell. So through the spine of the team, there was a raft of experience brought in by Jim Smith to replace him. And I think we only had Frank Worthington for a year, but he was still a joy. To, to watch with his maverick uh, tendencies and things like that. Um, but there are also players like Kevin Dillon that were starting to come through as a... Yeah, he was a real hard player, wasn't he? He played for the central midfielder. Well, we ended up with some really hard players. Yeah, we ended up with exactly some of the hardest players known to man. Um, you know, Noel Blake, yeah Rick Harford, Robert Hopkins, Howard Gale, Pat Vandenhow, Tony Coten. We had some... There's one more, I think,
0: isn't there? Is it Mark Dennis
1: as well? Mark well, we had a succession of completely mad left backs. You know, Pat Vander <laughs> did play at left back for us, Mark Dennis as well, and Julian Dix. Yeah, so I
0: saw Julian Dix play again play for Birmingham, yeah.
1: Throughout the entire 80s and into the early 90s, our left back position was occupied by um, shall we say, um, an uncompromising individual. And yeah. um, but they were all good footballers as well. Um And, but the red cards came almost as often as goals or assists with those guys. See, I, I, because
0: as I say, I started in the mid eighties as a kid, I was eight when I first started going to football. So I wanted to consume everything. And one thing that I don't know if you remember this in the central region, there was a program with Gary Newbon and Brian Clough. It was called Cluffy's Golden Oldies or something. And they weren't even that old and it showed you classic matches from West Midlands teams or East Midlands teams. And one of them was Birmingham versus Forest. I think it was 81. And it was an absolutely cracking game. Yeah, the 4-3. And I remember watching that, probably watched it about 87, 88, but it was on a Sunday afternoon, this programme. And it was the 4-3 game. And it was brilliant. The kits were amazing. The Adidas, both teams had Adidas kits. And, of course, I think Archie Gemma was now, he was, of course, playing for Birmingham, as you mentioned earlier. He was against
1: Forest. And I think Neil Watmore was playing as well. Is that right? Neil Watmore scored the winner. Yeah, He was the player on whom I think a £100,000 was spent with the Francis money to bring him in. Yeah. But he didn't quite achieve the goal return that Birmingham wanted. But he did have that moment to get the winner. And I was there that day. I remember being there that day. And yes, the kits were very striking, uh, sort of satin finish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Both Birmingham uh, uh, and Forest had. But yeah, I mean, I grew up on that star soccer show in the 1970s. Sunday afternoons in, in my house were idyllic. Mum cooking a roast dinner. You had Thunderbirds on ATV <laughs> at one o'clock. And then straight after at two o'clock, it was star soccer with um, with Gary Newborn and Hugh Johns doing Hugh the thing. Yeah. Uh, and you'd also see brief highlights of other games, uh, like in East Anglia, where Ipswich were doing so well at the time in the late 70s, early 80s, you'd hear a lot of Jerry Harrison or Roger Thames in the northeast watching Newcastle or Sunderland. Brian Moore, of course, in London. So we were introduced through Star Soccer to even more brilliant commentators than the BBC were offering, with the likes of David Coleman and Barry Davies.
0: Yeah, exactly. And... Um... I've got, only got vague memories of that because I didn't like football so much, but my dad would come, he'd go out at lunchtime, maybe for a pint, and he'd come back and he put, he'd put it on. And ATV was, then became central. It was all alien to me. What's this ATV becoming central? And it all changed. It was all a bit strange. But as you said, I can remember him putting football on in the afternoon and I can remember just these highlights. And I don't think people realise how lucky they are today to be able just to flick through and this game after game from different countries whereas we were restricted to 10 minutes of as you said perhaps Ipswich versus i don't know um, yeah but we of devoured
1: it. but we devoured it you know because well, yeah, uh, uh, you know and we 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 appreciated the live football as it when it came whether it was an FA cup final or whether it was the home nations games that used to be played or whether it was European Championships or World Cups that, or European Cup finals. That was the live football you got on the BBC or the ITV. Yeah. <coughs> excuse me. So you you learned to appreciate and cherish the highlights programmes just as much. And if you were allowed as a youngster to stay up to watch Match of the Day, then, you know, you treated it with the reverence it deserved because your dad didn't let you stay up every night. No. But to be able to stay up past 10 o'clock to watch Match of the Day was a rare treat. And about this time as well, is that when you
0: first started getting into music? Because I can't talk to you without talking about music, because football and music are two of my biggest things. So what, when did you start getting into music?
1: I would have been about six or seven when my dad wanted me to take piano lessons, because my dear old late dad was an amazing piano player. Right, OK. An amazing piano player. He was at like play all the show tunes beautiful flowing piano he could also play in the les dawson style he could also deliberately play badly which (sighs) thrilled me as much as him playing gershwin or or you know oscar peterson or anything like that um so i took piano lessons but then at the age of about nine or ten i went to watch my older brother rehearse with a band he just joined in sully hall and um went to watch them rehearses and you know, irritating little kid brother. And the only member of the band that looked like he was having any fun up there rehearsing was the drummer. Ah, and I said to my mum afterwards, oh, mum, I want to learn to play the drums. And she didn't dismiss it. And before long, she bought me a little rubber practice pad and a pair of sticks. And that's how my drumming career started. Um, so by the time I was 12, I was playing drums and still learning piano. Um And later in life, learning the guitar came along as I started working in music shops and had to learn how to play guitar in order to help sell the instruments. So before long, I kind of became a jack of all trades. But the the drums have, you know, since I started learning the drums, they've always been first for me, quite the way through till now.
0: Because, of course, then um, it wasn't just any old music. You were, of course, into mainly rock music, I believe, as well.
1: Yeah, my two older brothers, Phil and Rob, had rock records in the house by the time I was starting to appreciate what music was about. So they had albums like Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous album. They had uh, Deep Purple's Machine Head and In Rock, two of their very best studio albums. There was Rainbow Rising as well, which um, really drew me in. And then um, my brother's, suddenly didn't like the idea of their irritating little kid brother liking the same music as they did and said, go and bugger off and find something else to like because these are our bands, not yours. Oh, right, okay. And that was, when, that was when Kiss came into the picture because I went round to my cousin's house. He lived just around the corner from us. Said, can I look through your record collection? Came across an album called Kiss Alive, which was the band's first live double LP from 1975. Took it home put it on. And I don't, it's not, it's no exaggeration to say the first 15 minutes, the first side of music that I heard those first five songs totally changed my life and no, changed, changed changed my idea of what I thought was cool, changed my idea of almost what I wanted to be. I think pretty much at that point I want to be in kiss or I want to be a rock star. So those delusions of grandeur kicked in as almost as soon as I heard the first side of that record.
0: I can relate to that. I can definitely can. Because my dad passed on his love of rock music to me. He's also like soul and Motown, but he was similar and he had Deep Purple records. A lot of his records, unfortunately, he got rid of, but he had some cassettes and things and compilations he'd made. And I remember the first time I heard Smoke on the Water, for example, and I was about four or five. I thought, what is this? Because I just couldn't understand The music, because all I'd ever heard on on the radio were things like Books Fizz and things like that. And then I heard Richie Blackmore playing guitar and thought, okay, this is different. And then it led to other things. Of course, he got Bat Out of Hell on and he introduced me to all this different music. And my similar thing with with You with Kiss was, in fact, one song was a live version of Freebird by Leonard Skinner. Mm. And it was about 13 minutes long. And my dad played that. And I thought, what? I'd never heard a song so long. Before well that was it, my big thing that's the one that really got me into
1: into rock music, but I also had the the Friday rock show which Radio one had between ten p m and midnight on a Friday, just two hours of rock music um and it they gave it the fM frequency that was really important yeah you have got you know rather than it being on scratchy old um two seven five two eight five long wave as it would have been this was on the Early days of the FM frequency that um, that 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 Radio One had, so you would hear rock music with Tommy Vance as the DJ. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, um, in crystal clear FM. with you know, for those days, crystal clear FM, and of course, it just expanded my palette of the bands that I love because we, you know, all of us, me and my mates, that like rock music. We lived for Friday nights between 10 and midnight, making sure mum and dad didn't hear I still had the radio on in my bedroom. <laughs> so I could hear these all these brilliant bands that I subsequently got into, like Scorpions and Saxon and yeah. um and Marillion and um Shy and, and Diamond Head and all these, you know, other bands, British and you know, um American bands and things like that. So the Friday rock show was just as important a source of love and research for me as it was. Uh, watching you know, star soccer or match of the day in terms of football. With,
0: with football then as well, did you have, for example, certain songs that remind you of certain games? Is there certain things where you just think to yourself, I remember this game and it, it reminds me of this song, or you hear a song and you think, oh, this takes me back to, I don't know, 84 yeah.
1: or something like that? I can remember my dad used to drive me to, before long, I was the only one of the three boys in the family that wanted to go to Birmingham regularly with my dad. And, Oh, this would be about what year was runaway boy stray cats runaway boy was playing on the radios. We were driving to park on Prince Albert street, which was a little private street where a little kid used to sell, watch your car for, you know, 50 (laughs) p sort of thing. And my dad would say, yes. So we then walked down and I, I remember it's the first time I'd heard stray cats. Yeah. And that, that sort of I didn't know what rockabilly was. I was, yeah. you know, 10, 11 years I've never heard rockabilly before. I wasn't aware of all that had come before in American music in the 50s and 60s. And I thought it sounded amazing. Um, and my dad hated it because obviously he probably heard original rockabilly and thought this is just a, a bastardized version of it. Of course. Yeah. I, remember, I remember vividly hearing that song and then having it in my head, whatever game it was that we were going to see that day at St. Andrews. Um, so, yeah, Stray Cat's Runaway Boy makes me think of, of walking from Prince Albert Street down towards, you know, um, the the Tilton Cop corner where we used to stand.
0: It's funny because you mentioned the particular song, and there's two songs that remind me of first going to football, and neither of them are particularly cool, I suppose. One is Tarzan Boy by Baltimore <laughs> because it came out I mean, in yeah. 1985. And the other one, my first ever away game I went to um, was Rhythmics." So there must be an angel playing with my heart or something. Yeah. Well. yeah, And they were two songs that I just remember vividly hearing before the game because they were in the charts at the time. So not particularly cool, but again, it's just when I think back to starting with football, that's the ones And my children, because of Stranger Things and that they're into retro and old music, so they love Tarzan Boy because it's in Stranger Things. Yeah, when I hear it, I just think of before the match on the tannoy and hearing it like that. So yeah. music and football do go hand in hand. Now, you talked again a little bit now there about the 80s. For Birmingham in the 80s, there was really a crazy time, really. When you think of 83, 84 things, that was a relegation, I think.
1: Yeah, and there was a, there were a couple of relegations in promotions yeah. around that time. Uh, I we remember never, was, the Villa
0: game? Was it the Villa game? Was it at Villa Park? That was
1: boxing, day, boxing Day, Boxing Day eighty four. It might have been. I can't think. But we beat it's them. the one we, with Steve McMahon as a terrible tackle. Oh, it? Um, oh, that was at Villa Park. That was where Noel Blake nutted Steve McMahon at the end of the yeah. game. have beating us one nil. Was um, it on Kevin but,
0: Broadhurst the tackle? I think maybe it might or, have
1: been. Yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's Kevin. A was, tackle, awful. Yeah, it was a terrible tackle. But McMahon had a bit of history for that. Um and yeah, Noel Blake nutted him at the full-time whistle yep. in the center circle. And I remember Jimmy Greaves, who was a pundit on uh central at that time with Gary Newborn, having yeah. an argument with Gary Newborn saying that he'd because Gary Newborn had sent the footage that was it, it wasn't a live game, it wasn't on Star Soccer for some reason, yeah. but it had been filmed with a one-camera shoot and Gary had received that film from the cameraman who was there and had sent it to the FA. Oh, really? Right, OK. And and, and Jimmy Greaves essentially called Gary Newborn a snitch <laughs> that day on air and said, you, you know, you you're, you just don't like the blues. You're just trying to, you know, uh, dob them in it because you don't like them. Uh, and I remember that argument. It, it, that argument must have gone on for a full four or five minutes. You might even find that argument on YouTube if you're lucky, but it's... Uh-huh. it's um it was, you know, that was in the days when before Saint Greavesy, we yep. were lucky to get the early days of, of Jimmy Greaves as a pundit, and he stayed with Central for quite some time to it do, yeah, um, live games, even when Saint Greavesy was happening. So yeah, I remember that, but also I remember beating Villa three nil on Boxing Day, sometime in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noel Blake, Mick Ferguson, and the late great Ian Handyside yeah Yes. Yeah. Um, but generally, the eighties were not a good time, for Birmingham because I think we went down another time and we didn't come 86. back up yeah, 86. for a very long time. And there were financial problems. The training ground was sold to Richard Branson for a quid so that Virgin could develop, um, you know, their um, airline business uh, around Birmingham airport. Um, there was threat of liquidation. Um, Ken Weldon was uh, briefly an owner. Um, we had managers like Gary Pendry and Dave Mackay who couldn't get Birmingham back to the top flight. Indeed, we by the time we were at the turn of the 90s, we dropped down to the third tier. That's right, yeah. Um, and we came back up briefly with Lou Macari at the helm yes. and we won the Leyland Daff in 91. But then we're back down again um, in 93, 94. And that's when Barry Fry arrived midway through that season, couldn't keep us up. But um, that following season, 94-95, in uh, what is now League One, was arguably one of the most fun seasons I've ever had following Blues. Right. Why? Just, Why was it so good? Because of Barry. He was really, just... Right. Okay. <laughs> suddenly, there was a story every day about Birmingham, and not just in the Birmingham Post or in the Evening Mail, but in the Nationals. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the the Sun and the Mirror uh, and, and the all the dailies all suddenly took an interest in the fact that here's a bloke who's had three heart attacks at Barnett because of how he didn't get on with Stan Flashman, the chairman. Yeah, infamous the infamous chairman, first, yeah. You've got the first female chief executive in football, Karen Brady. Yeah. You've got owners who are um, pornographers, essentially. Yeah. You know, uh, as they were uh, you know, leveled at. Uh, Sunday Sport, you know, David Sullivan or Ann Summers. Uh, and you've also got what happens not long after um, Karen Brady starts dating one of the players, Paul. Yeah, uh, exactly. So there was, there was a story almost every day coming out of Birmingham and people were talking about the club again because the, the club had essentially been forgotten about Yeah, the relegations, the you know, and this is the club that bears the name of, of the city of Birmingham. So yeah. it, it was really odd to be such an afterthought as a, as a club in in so many people's ears, didn't matter where we were. You are where you are on the table. There's no sense of entitlement uh, from me about where which division we should have been in. But to be you know ignored is you know it was it was hard to take. But Barry brought the good fun back to supporting Birmingham, and we went to Liverpool that year in the FA Cup, took them to a replay at Anfield, and Ricky Otto uh, scored one of the best Birmingham goals I will ever see live to get us level. At Anfield, um, it was one-one after extra time. We lost a penalty shootout. We didn't actually. We didn't score a single penalty that night. Um, we even had a bloke called Gary Cooper who couldn't shoot. Imagine that! Um, <laughs> but th- that see- we won the double that season because we got promotion as as, as champions of um, League One, as it is now, and we won the Football League Trophy again, beating Carlisle. Uh, so it was just a happy season. Everything worked out uh, and Birmingham were back in the, the, the championship as it is now. Um, and of course, not long after Trevor came back, the prodigal son returned as our manager.
0: Also as well, going back to the Barry Fry era, one thing I always remember is that Birmingham City seemed to always have an abundance of strikers. Oh, to love signing I, think,
1: strikers. I think when Barry left, I think there was something like 48 professionals on the books and a good Thirty-five of those were strikers. <laughs> I mean, there was Dave Regis, Ken yeah. Charlery, Miguel de Souza, yeah, Steve McGavin, Steve Claridge. Of John, course, was John Gale still there as well? John Gale was from the previous year. John Gale was the guy that scored the winner for Lou Macari at That Wembley was the Macari in, one, right? Okay, ninety-one. Yeah, so John wasn't. Um, but we had Kevin Francis, another yeah. Francis, big Kev, six foot seven. Um, and he scored some important goals for, for Birmingham. He cost us £800,000 from Stockport, but he was a Brummie. Um, So the fans immediately took to him. Not only is he called Francis, but he's from Brum. So yeah. um, I think he scored a brilliant goal against Middlesbrough in the Cup and Jimmy Greaves on Central called him Kevinio, as though he was like some kind of Brazilian for scoring an amazing goal. Um, but yes, yeah, so many strikers. Um But, you know, there were one or two that mattered like Steve Claridge, who was very important in that promotion campaign in 94, 95 and Kevin Francis and others. But, yeah, Barry, he always wanted one more player, didn't he? Yeah, exactly.
0: He loved all that, the transfer side of it. But also as well, a lot of people won't realise that in the central region at this time, A lot of football was being shown live on Sunday afternoons because ITV didn't have rights anymore because the Premier League had gone. So on a Sunday afternoon, you could watch Birmingham play Peterborough or something like that. And Jimmy Greaves was involved. And for a lot of people, that was if you didn't have Sky and you weren't interested in Channel Four and Italian football, that was it. That was your football fix. It It
1: wasn't every week though. They they had to pick and choose. Yeah when they showed games I'm I'm not sure what the deal was but it certainly wasn't every Sunday by that time Peter Brackley was the commentator who was regularly used by Central yeah um for those games and yes you know St Andrews was sometimes chosen um I think they showed a game while St Andrews was being rebuilt after Sullivan and Gold had taken over where Jose Dominguez sort of emerged as, yes. as a star player. Look, the Portuguese kid of war, I think we called him. Um, I think he scored a magic goal just weaving through. It might have been against Peterborough, actually, um, running half the length, length of the pitch and scoring. So, yes, we were uh, quite lucky in the central region that we got that that deal. I think that's something that Gary Newborn must have done with the Football League at the time to secure a limited number of live fixtures for a Sunday afternoon. Um, and yes, you're right. I would far rather have watched that. No offence to Football Italia, which was great, but given the choice, I'd always go for watching a, a domestic game. Yeah, We were the
0: same on a Sunday afternoon at home. If if we watched a game and we had a choice between, I don't know, Lazio and Salvador, Lazio is probably a bad example because of Gascoigne, but an Italian game anyway, my dad had much preferred to watch... Um, what it was, would it have been first division, second division, or whatever it was, or division yeah. two, division one, than watching Serie A because he was more interested because the atmosphere was there. It was more, I suppose, blood and thunder. I remember Wolves at the time had got Graham Taylor as manager, John De Wolf was playing, they got games yeah. like that, and it there was a lot of
1: interest in it. The, the, the Central were very, very good on. Live games and highlights programs. They they were, you know, had a lot of dedicated program. There was midweek sports special. Yeah. That they used to show regular on Tuesday or a Wednesday night. Um Sarah Jane Mee, who went on to present Sky News, was a regular presenter of that show. I remember during the the 90s. And Stan Collymore, who I got to work with subsequently, was was one of the pundits that they used. Yeah. And whether it was live football, or whether it was like a midweek sports special for either a cup match or an important league game. Yeah, we were very well served by, um, you know, regional television in the Midlands that we got to see, you know, Birmingham and, and Villa and Wolves and West Brom as and Coventry and whatnot and Leicester and Forest as often as we did.
0: Yeah. Now, at this point, you talked about the mid-90s then. Are you still working in a music shop? Where is Ian Danter then at this point when Birmingham are having this great season with Barry Fry? Where are you I, at this point?
1: I was working in a guitar shop in Birmingham called Musical Exchanges as a guitar salesman. And so I couldn't get to watch Birmingham every Saturday because I worked pretty much every Saturday. Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, my, my day off other than Sunday was in the week. So yeah. I would normally have, um, I think it was Wednesdays I had off. Anyway, so a lot of football fans worked in that guitar shop. It was a massive shop. It was not just guitars. It was drums, keyboards, PA, everything, acoustics. And uh, a lot of the guys that worked in that shop, including the general manager, were massive football fans. And so what happened was um, I bought a little tiny uh, pocket battery-operated transistor radio with an earpiece. And on a Saturday afternoon... I would be listening to BRMB um, and giving everyone else in the shop updates on scorelines involving my team, their team. So everyone, all my colleagues were kept abreast of things that were happening um, all around the country. A bit silly really, but the the general manager had almost demanded that I wear this earpiece because you know, He trusted me for some reason to be able to still serve customers at the time, which I did, whilst, you know, handling delicate Gibson Les Pauls that I was handing over to customers to try out. And suddenly Birmingham have scored a penalty and I nearly dropped the bloody thing. So, um, yeah, those were interesting times. Um, uh, Yeah, but every Saturday I was was the go-to man for the updates on the matches.
0: Which is ironic when you think of where your path took you later on. So you mentioned BRMB. Um, For people who didn't know, explain what
1: BRMB... BRMB was um, the the second biggest independent local radio station outside of Capital in London. And it was launched in the mid-70s and over time with... Pioneers like the late, great Tony Butler, who invented the football phoning yeah. in the late 70s, effectively, invented that whole ethos of, uh, right, Villa were rubbish uh, and invite callers, you know, to disagree with him, rather than a sort of anodyne, bland, you know, uh, football programme. Tony was a real innovator. So BRMB were always at the forefront of doing things um for football and George Gavin was then the sports editor who went right. on to work at Sky Sports and then Tom Ross took over uh in the 90s and yeah that you know that the 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 cap by that time brmb and capital gold um were the brands and capital gold were well known in the uh in the 90s for buying exclusivity for commentary rights around the country mm. Uh, in London especially, and in the Midlands. Um, and so BRMB was a, was a massive part of the football landscape in the Midlands, and, and Tom's football phoning was on a Friday night and a Monday night. You know, the, the preview and then the review of, of the action was essential listening. So how did you
0: get involved then with BRMB? How did someone come from selling guitars on a Saturday afternoon to working for this enormous radio station.
1: This is where my best friend to this day, Keith Laurent comes into the picture because Keith um, and I, we used to, we were in bands together and things like that. And, you know, going out socially and having drinks and whatnot. And I always used to do silly impressions of Trevor Francis or Graham Taylor or Des Lynham or Alan Hansen in the pub when we were drinking with, with me and Keith and our mates. And Keith was sort of saying, oh, you're wasted, son. You should be on the radio or on the telly or something. And I never thought anything of it. I still, at that point, still had delusions of grandeur about being a rock star. Of
0: course, yeah.
1: But unbeknownst to me, Keith wrote a letter to Tom Ross telling him about me and what I did. And I can remember vividly being at musical exchanges one day in the week, quiet day in in the guitar shop, not much happening and the intercom goes uh, call for ian dante line 4 call for ian dante line 4 it's tom ross and um, I've immediately got tom ross so I, I, I think it's keith winding me up because we yeah. each other so i picked up the phone hello and this voice on the other end i mean keith was dreadfully impression so i knew it wasn't him it was tom ross and he he said he'd received this letter and he wanted to check me out so could i record Uh, a brief sketch utilising my voices and keep it topical and relevant to the the Birmingham area. So this would have been, by the way, this would have been um, the spring of 1997. And I said, yeah, brilliant. He said, I can't pay you for it. He said, no, that's fine. I'd rather enjoy that. So I recorded something. It went out on air in the hour build-up to a Saturday 3 o'clock kickoff.
0: So they just took your basically trial audio and just put it on
1: air? I actually went into BRB and recorded the sketch right. Tom, the producer Guy Jogo. He, uh, you know, was very patient with me as I recorded each of my individual lines as Des lineham or Alan Hansen or Brian Little, whatever it was and uh, stitched it all together to make it sound coherent. And then it went out on air the next day and um, it went over really well. So Tom asked me a couple of weeks later, can you do another one? And then, The week after that, can you do another and another and another? And that continued through to the end of that season, the end of the 96, 97 season. I, by that time changed jobs. I was working in Cradley Heath for a guitar distributor by that point. And over the summer, I completely forgot almost about the fact that I had that particular role. And so when the, his new producer rang me in August that summer to say, a, we'd like you to do some more sketches and B we can actually pay you this time. Right. That was when the light bulb went off in my head that there might be something in it. So I had another four or five months or so of doing sketches every couple of weeks, which as I say, by this time were paid. And then um, I was called into the BRMB office one day. I made up a cock and bull story to get out of work, met the BRMB program controller who'd asked to meet me who promptly offered me the role as the flying eye travel reporter.
0: Right.
1: But that so, was with your real voice,
0: I imagine. Not
1: Yes. Yes. That, Although I did, or Alan I, I did work, you know, Billy Conley or Des Lineham sometimes into my travel reports as my confidence grew, but that was the whole idea. <laughs> that was what the program controller wanted from me, which I didn't realize at first. He, he wanted me to utilize those talents um, as a, as a proper broadcaster rather than just somebody who wrote sketches for, for the Saturday afternoon football show. So I joined BRMB as their flying eye in 1998. And um, about a year after that, Tom started using me as a football reporter to go to games. My first game was Warsaw against Chesterfield in early 99 at the Beskett Stadium. Before long, I was doing commentaries on air. So it was just little stages, Gary, you know, um, you know, um, Wow. Okay, you want me to do this now and this and this and this. And um, by 2000, I was hosting the Drive Time Show on BRMB and doing match commentaries on a Saturday. It was nuts.
0: How did how did it become then that they, they gave you this Warsaw game? Ian? did they just know that you loved football? Was that just in conversation?
1: Well, obviously Tom knew that I loved football because my sketches. Because just from the sketches, they just thought, "Well, he's a football yeah. fan." And but then I didn't know until two days before that I was even doing that game right. because Tom had a. A whiteboard in his office that was had section had fourteen different sections in it, um, and those sections were dedicated to the next two weeks' fixtures. You know, seven days for week one, seven days for week two. Yeah, and he used he used to write down the games in black marker pen, the the the, the kickoff times in red marker pen, and then next to it in green were the initials of the reporter or commentator going to that game. And one day I was walking past his office, looked through the door, and it said, Warsaw, Chesterfield, ID. And I just carried on walking past towards the coffee machine or whatever. And it was whilst I was getting my cup of tea out of the machine, I was, hang on, there's nobody else who works here with the same initials as me. Perhaps he... So I went back to the office, knocked on his door, said, um, Tom, it says ID there for Warsaw, Chesterfield. Do you mean, do you mean meet it? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. So you'll get your bag from Phil, the engineer, and here's how it works, and you go in there, go. And so I had a day to prepare for Warsaw against Chesterfield in what was then uh, the equivalent now to League One yeah. uh, on the Saturday uh, and learn how to use the broadcast equipment and everything. So it was kind of thrust upon me.
0: Wow. That's just incredible, isn't it? Just really drop you in the deep end there. Yeah.
1: Well, sink or swim. Yeah, um, very much, yeah. I, I knew that... Um, by this time, I was starting to realize there are opportunities here if you're, you know, you show that you you have the, the ability um, to listen to, you know, what's being suggested to you and, and to, you know, deliver on air in a professional manner. And so, um, thankfully, he liked what I did. We had a few uh, what you call Snoop sessions where... He listens back to your commentary and, and stops the tape occasionally says, right, you shouldn't have done that there. You should have done this. Okay. And you you would learn um, because Tom, you were no good to Tom if you didn't learn from your mistakes. No, of course, no. So very quickly, um, I grew in confidence as a match commentator. And before long, there were two commentary games on a Saturday, one on BRMB that Tom usually did. And one on Capital Gold, and I became the Capital Gold commentator.
0: It's incredible that you just what, what point when you were doing your first game, did you just think, right, I'm just gonna wing it? Or did you just think when I was a kid and played football, I used to commentate on myself? Or did oh. you take things oh. from Hugh Johns or something?
1: Commentate all the time and pretend I was yeah, Hugh Johns or Barry Davis or David Cobb because they were my three yeah. particular favorites. Um so, yeah, there was an innate knowledge in me of, of what was required as a commentator. You still have to do the homework, and I very quickly learned that you, even though you're going to the game reporting and commentating for the benefit of a Warsaw audience, as I, you know, as I was doing in those early weeks, you've still got to consider the other team for them and you know the the players that they are and the squad that they are. So I learned that discipline very early on of being properly prepared about players and their provenance and where they've come from and how many goals they've scored and is their connection to the club they're playing, that sort of thing. So you learn that very, very quickly because you realise that you have to go into that game knowing as much, if not more, about that game than anybody else in the stadium.
0: At the same time, were you trying to keep one eye on the Birmingham score as well while you were
1: covering? Oh, yeah. I mean, I got to commentate on Birmingham a few times. Yeah. Which was an absolute... I mean, I I was ringing my dad saying, you won't believe this, Dad. I'm doing Birmingham on Saturday. The, the The sort of thing that there was that incredulous nature in me. I couldn't believe that I was being offered the chance to commentate on BRMB or Capital Gold on a Birmingham City game. Yeah. I'd have a... A Birmingham an ex-Birmingham city player sat alongside me like John McCarthy or uh, Kevin Broadhurst or Ian Atkins or somebody like that it was a huge privilege that was not lost on me um so yeah i, I if, but if i wasn't commenting, of course i keep an ear out for how Birmingham were getting on that that's never changed whether that was then or whether it's right now yes. so we work for for talk sport i um i've always checked in to see how we're doing it's um like I say, it's a hereditary disease. You can't shift it.
0: No, and at that point as well, just as you, you were doing that, Birmingham started to pick up, of course. They got to the League Cup final in 2001. Yeah. And then there's promotion the following year to the
1: Premier League. So, I mean, what a time to, to support the club. We'd waited, obviously, 16 years for the chance to get back into the the top division and we've never played in the Premier League, of course, since its inception. So to get back there was a huge thrill. Uh, And then to stay in that division for a few years under Steve Bruce was fantastic. We had this brilliant record, at least initially over the Villa.
0: Yeah. That's, was it the 3-0, wasn't it? The Peter Enkelman game, was that the first
1: yeah, the one? Peter, Well, there were, there were two Peter Enkelman games. There was the one at St Andrews, and he also had a ricket at Villa Park when we yeah. won 2-0, where he didn't get to the ball uh, before Jeff Horsfield did, who took it round him and knocked it into the whole End for 2-0. So for the, for the first two or three years, those Blues Villa games were dominated by Birmingham wins and Villa goalkeeping cock-ups, whether it was yeah. Peter Enkelman or Thomas Sorensen. Villa um, goalkeepers just seem to keep handing us three points on a plate. Um, so yeah, they were they were heady times to be um, working in radio as a Birmingham fan watching Birmingham play. And I would left for Talk Sport in two thousand and four, and so I got to report. I, I initially, I just joined joined Talk Sport as a reporter, not as a commentator, which I'd been up to that point. Yeah. But yeah, I got to watch a lot of Blues. Um, uh, and eventually, the commentary games came further down the line. After I'd started at Talksport,
0: how did the Talksport
1: thing come about? Then was it just a case of were you looking to move, or I wasn't. I wasn't looking to move. The Capital Gold BRB thing seemed to be coming to a natural end because there was a new program controller who looked after the whole Capital Gold brand. Who didn't want live football anymore, that that Uh, it wasn't wasn't making enough money. Um, So that summer of 2004, I knew there would still be a job for me as a reporter at Capital Gold if I wanted it, but um, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to get any commentaries out of of that particular contract that we now had. And that was when I was contacted by a dear old friend who so sadly is no longer with us, Nigel Pearson. Yes. And the, West Brom,
0: ago, the West Brom fan, isn't it? The yeah. Who,
1: who had been at Talk sports since its inception, uh, you know, going into the new millennium. And he said, Dance, uh, talk sport are looking for a Midlands reporter. We've, they've let someone go. They're looking for someone new to bring in. I think you'd be perfect, pal. Send in a, a reel to this guy. So I did that and I met, this guy that Nigel recommended, uh, who was the head of life sport at the station. Uh, we met in uh, the Saddler's Arms in Solihull for a pint, um, quickly struck up a friendship, and I got the job. So, my first game for Talk Sport was pretty much 19 years ago this week, as we speak. Crew Alexander against Cardiff City in the championship at Gresty Road. Dean Ashton scored a penalty that day, if I remember rightly. Right. Wow, okay. Yeah. Danny Gabadon was playing for Cardiff, two people who I've subsequently worked with on TalkSport as co-commentators. So, yeah, um, TalkSport came along midway through the noughties, as it were. Yeah, sure.
0: And as I said, somebody like Danny Gabidon, you were commentating or reporting on him, and then he became a, a colleague, so
1: yeah we uh, he I was kind of um a guinea pig for a few reporters and co-presenters when it, I, I used to have a, a show called Football First, which was on a Sunday afternoon or became a Saturday night. Yeah. and Talksport used to blood new pundits on my show. So I got to work with people like Danny Higginbottom, Mark Bircham, Martin Allen, Jason Yule. People like that, uh, Nikki Summerby, who were all given their first opportunities on TalkSport on my show. Danny
0: Higginbottom particular, is um, an impressive Oh, oh yeah. Person. Uh, you could, see, really you could good.
1: see from the very first show that he did with me that he was going to go on to do an awful lot. And, of course, he's now in the States, living in America, yeah, uh, working on their Premier League coverage as a co-commentator. Um and when it came to live games, I was also, you know, asked to look after uh, fresh blood. And Danny came in, Danny Gabbod on that is, came in just before the Euros because Wales had qualified and they were looking for a a co-commentator to go out there who'd got Welsh international experience. And Danny had not long retired from That's right. uh, the international scene and from club football. So we did a few games together just to help get his. His feet wet, and then um, we were suddenly out in France doing Wales beating Slovakia in Bordeaux in 2016. Um, and Danny was brilliant that tournament, and he let his his parties nature shine uh, whilst he was doing his competition. Exactly what Talksport wanted from him. And Danny too has gone on to do brilliant work with Ellis James on their Welsh football podcast. Yep. Um, and commentating for Sky, um, and I couldn't be happier for the, the progress that the likes of Danny Higginbottom and Danny Gabbadon have made.
0: Because um, I remember when, because I, I was a sales rep for, for years, and I used to travel, so I first come across you when I used to be in Birmingham, when you were on the BRMB radio. That's where I first heard you. Then, of course, listening to Talk Sport in the Car, I remember you working with Alvin Martin
1: as well. Yes. Alvin was my first radio husband uh, (laughs) at TalkSport because I was offered first two years from 2004 to 2006. I'm developing my profile as a reporter. They started giving me the odd commentary, and I did a few commentaries in the German World Cup Hmm. off-tube, off off the telly in 2006. And after that tournament, the programme controller, Steve Hodge, says, uh, um, you're free Friday evenings, aren't you? Um, And I said, for You, yeah, he said brilliant, good answer. You're um, doing a Friday night kickoff with Alvin Martin from August, and so me and Alvin were paired together. That was my first regular presenting gig on Talk Sport, doing the Friday evening seven till ten slot before either Mike Dickin, yeah, who used to do a late night, or George Galloway, who used to yeah. follow us uh, later on. And Alvin, fantastic. I mean, I can't say enough wonderful things about the man the player and the pundit yeah uh, and I've, i was i was the one of the best games i did last season if if not the best game was with alvin we were at the emirates when arsenal came back from 2-0 down against bournemouth to win 3-2 with that reece nelson goal yeah with the last kick of the game and alvin was my pundit that day and he was he was sensational absolutely sensational as a pundit always has been um so, why yeah, why I mean, do you think it
0: just works with him in
1: particular? Well, I try and work with everybody. I try, I try and develop a, a friendship and an understanding yeah, a with every pundit that I work with because that's the whole idea. You should never pigeonhole yourself with, uh, you know, either way, whether a pundit doesn't want to be pigeonholed with a commentator or vice no. versa, necessarily. Variety is the spice of life. Um, and I've been so fortunate to work with so many brilliant pundits i work with perry groves a lot nowadays yeah. who's equally as superb as alvin in terms of his pre-match preparation and his sense of humour and his knowledge of the game but i could list you a dozen pundits who i work with regularly who i would always want to be working with if i was given the chance david connolly adrian clark um neil redfern people like that you know ex pros who really know their stuff, and, I'm, and I mean really know their stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, but Alvin, you know, I just have a special friendship with Alvin because, you know, he was, he was my wingman for those first tentative steps into being a national broadcaster.
0: Yeah, exactly. So he was there by your side as you were yeah, starting out yeah. on the, the ladder at TalkSport. And yeah. um, I remember you worked with Mickey Quinn, didn't you, as well, for a while?
1: Quinny was great fun. We did a World Cup together in yeah. South Africa. Did a couple of games uh, out there. Yeah, Mick's uh, again, just a, a, a huge barrel of laughs and um, great fun to be around. He's um, infectious uh, company. You know, you you end up being as uh, as joyful as as he always is. So yeah, I, I I don't get to work with Mickey much anymore, and I do miss that because he's a funny man.
0: Well, I remember, I'm sure, yeah, it was, it was you, when there's a famous clip, isn't there, where the talk sport reel out, Hawksby and Jacobs reel out, where there's a, a,
1: oh, the a Newcastle that, fan. That clip, yeah. Calling
0: up, calling about. He's devastated that Mickey's still not at the club or something. That's
1: right. That would have been uh, over Christmas because uh, Mickey and I were given the opportunity to do drive. Yeah. Between Christmas and New Year, Adrian Durham was taking some well-earned holiday. Yeah, we took a, a call from William from Tyneside, <laughs> who uh, was trying to explain to Mickey just how bad things were at St. James's Park and burst into tears. Uh, the famous,
0: scored so many
1: calls. Oh, I know, I love it. It's so funny.
0: I always wondered if it was a Sunderland fan on the wind up. Well,
1: you only hear that clip up to the point where he says, scored so many calls. We. <laughs> Now, what we did at that point, I remember what happened because um, there were people in the control room, including my now ex-wife, who was in the control room at the time. We faded him down. At that point, Mickey and I carried on talking, and the phone op spoke to William, if that indeed was his name, yeah. and said, Are "You okay? We can't, you know, we don't want to, you know, embarrass you. Um, you're all right, you know. You, you sounded like you're a bit emotional." He goes, "No, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right." so we put him back on and he sort of went again um after he'd been brought back on air so we faded him down a second time and i think i think in the end they just said they were going to send him a couple of newcastle books you know just to <laughs> cheer him up a bit or something but yeah that clip tells half the story but yeah. i've had it levelled up me manys oh that's a hoax it's a, you know a, it wasn't real i'm 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 not so sure because you know a hoaxer would have put the phone down straight away. Or so, but, you know, th- this guy just seemed a little bit more plausible than that somehow. I could be entirely wrong in that assessment, but it felt plausible to me anyway. The thing is, Ian, you
0: know yourself, when you're passionate about football, things can get on top of you sometimes. And
1: some people, it, it is their life. It's all they have. They don't care about anything else. And I, I, got, I got quite choked up on air The day that Birmingham City won the League Cup. Yeah, I I was lucky enough to be at Wembley that day as part of the the team. I wasn't the commentator, I was on the gantry providing sort of colour, colour, colour. And after we'd won it, and um, they threw to me, you know, alongside Sam Matterface and Stan Collymore for my reaction. And I, I, I did get very, very emotional because the first thing I thought about as Stephen Carr thrust that trophy into the sky was, God, I wish dad was here. Of and course. I, that's, that's and like I wish it. granddad was here because if, you know, the, the, and then you're thinking about all those blue noses to my left-hand side as I look around the stadium who were probably all having exactly the same thoughts. And I, I had a courier bike booked for me to take me back from Wembley to Talksport just south of the river because I had a phone-in to do at seven o'clock that night with Ray Houghton. And that got very emotional because we were taking call after call after call. Yes, we were taking irate Arsenal fans who couldn't believe they'd thrown it away against flipping Birmingham. You know, how dare Birmingham beat Arsenal uh, in a cup final as though it was, you know, somehow preordained that Arsenal were meant to win. But also all these Birmingham fans telling pretty much exactly the same story that I was telling in my head about, oh, my sister was a blue nose, she couldn't be here. Oh, my dad passed away two years ago, all that sort of stuff. And um, that is the most enjoyable phone-in I've ever done for obvious reasons, but it was also a very highly charged phone-in for me. And I remember driving back home that night, euphoric, but utterly drained at the same time. Emotionally drained, I imagine. oh Spent, completely spent.
0: What must Ray Houghton have been thinking? He must have just
1: thought, do I need to be here at this point? <laughs> Ray, as a, as an ex-Villa player, Ray's, I know, a, yeah. <laughs> Ray's another brilliant pundit who I loved working with and I still love working with. And I saw him at the World Cup in Qatar last November. When we hugged like we'd not seen each other for 10 years because it's so nice to see him um, whenever I do bump into him. But he was brilliant that night as well because he got into it. Um, he got into the whole emotion of it all and Ray's a very level-headed pundit, speaks an awful lot of sense um, he can be grumpy about certain things, which I quite I found quite endearing about Ray yeah. that, you know, um, we once had an on-air row, we were doing a Wolves game in the, their promotion season under Nuno Espirito Santo where I was said just in passing in commentary that Diogo Jota was 21 and Ray went, he's not 21 he sat alongside me Ray's 21, he's not Look at him, he's not 21. No, right, he's 21 years of age. I this is happening on air whilst we're supposed to be commentating on the game. He's not 21. Come on, dance. He's not he is so. I've had to eventually type up wiki and you know turn my laptop around to rate a show. Look, Diego Jota, age 21. Um, and he only then did he sort of partially climb down. Uh he doesn't look to anyone. So you know that, that you know, but um. Yeah, Ray, uh, another amazing, amazing individual to get to work with. To think that you get to work with some of these people, and I still get it now, you know, whether I get to work with Perry Groves, who won the title on Mm. that dramatic night at Anfield in 89, or whether I get to work with somebody like, I don't know, Crikey, David Connolly, who played all around Europe as well as around the Premier League and and, and things like that, or Stuart Pierce, to get to work with Stuart Pierce as I will be on Sunday for the Community Shield at Wembley for talk sport when Arsenal play Manchester City. These are things that still, you, you probably won't believe me, but they still blow my mind. That no, I, I, get- I can understand that. It's,
0: I can understand that. Yeah, I imagine because you saw these players either play in the flesh or on TV they not, I, mean, I remember Alvin Martin playing for England in the 86 World Cup.
1: Yeah, That's and he should well have played against terrible. Argentina. He yeah. should have played against Argentina. Bobby Robson dropped him and brought Terry Fennick back in for that fateful day, game against Diego Maradona. Yeah. Um, Alvin always says he'd have taken out Maradona on that run. I believe we, him. Having
0: seen Alvin play, I believe him as well. He'd so. have kicked
1: him six foot in the air and I've no reason to doubt him. But no, it, it's easy. It would be easy, potentially, I suppose, to get blasé about the, the, the quality and the, the, the standing, the sheer standing of these pundits that you get to work with. Um, but I'm still as bemused by the fact that I get to break bread with these people now as I was back in 1999 when I'm working with ex-blues players like Kevin Broadhurst and Ian Atkins and John McCarthy, who I also idolised, you know.
0: Well, you think back to all those Saturdays, all those years ago, when you're there with your little transistor radio, relaying the scores and saying, yes. "Oh yeah, there's been a, there's been a goal at uh, the Bescot or whatever," and you're relaying that to your colleagues. Yeah. And then all this time later, you're actually in a studio commentating on these enormous matches. And yeah, so and I think
1: point... we, you probably haven't forgot where you came from, really. I no, and my, my boss, uh, little Gary, who uh, was my boss at that guitar shop. Um, we still speak regularly, and he's always looking out for what I'm doing. And you know, he uh, he takes a great sense of pride in what I've become, um, and that's quite grounding as well. That you know, he's there listening to you, um, whether I'm commentating on his beloved Manchester United. My my old boss is, you know, looking out for me and making sure that I'm I'm still doing. Doing the do and still uh, yeah. at these major tournaments, and he takes a a huge swell of pride in, in in what I've achieved having left his his guitar shop. And that means a lot to know that you know these people still care um and it's still your mates, um and and still want what's best for you.
0: And what about music? How do you fit it all in now to still play? Because of course you're <laughs> still involved in playing music, aren't you?
1: Yes, I am. I've I've released three solo albums over the past decade, which, you know, don't get me wrong. These aren't things that, you know, um, get done in five minutes. These can take a very long time to put together piecemeal simply because of my work schedule. Yeah, sure. Um, so you just have to be clever about, you know, how you balance that schedule. But I'm a quick worker in terms of, recording music um so that helps uh in in that sense that i'm not spending you know two or three weeks in the studio trying to put stuff down when i know i can get things done in a week so that helps from a a timing point of view i know what you're getting at but you just divide your time as best you can uh, between the two things that you love
0: and i think that's the thing i think that you're, you're a great example of that Ian. where you are somebody who had two loves as a child and has been able to continue them into adulthood and i have been very successful doing both of them. I mean, that's that's a great example for anybody who thinks, yeah, but, you know, I'd love to do that, but I don't know if it's possible. Well, it, well it, you're it, the living it, proof it is.
1: It's always possible. Um, anything is possible. Yeah. Um, there's an awful lot of luck involved and continues to be so. Um, there's also ability involved I I can't shy away from that you've got to be good but there's a lot of luck involved and when that lucky break occurs that's when the really hard work starts because you you really have to justify that luck that's been thrown your way um but yeah what's that phrase if you love your job you'll never work a day in your life exactly and um I'm again it's not lost on me how fortunate a position i'm in to love what i do whether it be doing a football commentary for talk sport or whether it do a bit of djing for planet rock which i love doing as well exactly, yeah, playing the music it. i love or whether it's getting behind a drum kit in a recording studio or live on a stage and beating seven bells out of my kit these are these are things that um, have been handed to me, and um, I truly appreciate them all and will continue to do so.
0: Well, you think about you talk about look, I mean, and also talent. You think back to your best friend sending the letter to BRMB, the mm-hmm. and they contacted you. But the point that was great of him, so it's a bit of luck because you didn't do it, but at the same time, if you do your impressions and you're dreadful. It doesn't matter about that letter because they're not going to sign you up anyway. If you can't do it, if you've not got the That's talent true. to do that impression,
1: so. And Keith has never let me forget the fact that he sent that letter, <laughs> and um, I'm still in debt to him for a good few million quid. Um, <laughs> I may pay it off before I before I die. I don't know, but um, you know, as I say, we're still best mates. We still see each other regularly. He still teases me about about you know the fact that if it wasn't for me, son. uh, And all that, and he's right. I I can't argue with him. If it wasn't for Keith, you just don't know. Chaos theory applies. You just don't know how your life turns out um, otherwise. So, again, it's not lost on me that the fortune that came my way, and then you, once that good fortune comes your way, you've got to act upon it uh, and make it yours.
0: Brilliant. Now, because it's a retro football. Podcast, of course. Yeah. I just want to finish off by going back a little bit in time and just, you've talked about that great season under Barry Fry when the double, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about the 80s, the yo yo times. What, what is one of your, apart from the, the double 94 95, what are some of your other favorite Birmingham City memories from, you talked about your first game, of course, but from childhood through your teen years? to really before you started working on Saturdays. What are your some of your favourite memories of that time?
1: The the, the 3-0 um, against Villa on Boxing Day in the 80s yeah. will always stick in my mind. I mentioned the goal scorers earlier, Noel Blake, Mick Ferguson, Ian Handysides. Yeah,
0: you remember them just like that,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, also, there was a game against Brentford in that 1994-95 double season, We just won the auto windscreens against Carlisle on the Sunday. And I think we were playing Brentford, who were challenging us for promotion on the Tuesday. So we had literally one day of turnaround. And the atmosphere at St. Andrew's that night was, I cannot, electric, doesn't even do it justice. And we beat Brentford 2-0. Kevin Francis and Liam Daish scored. And just the hair's back of my next standing up now thinking about the atmosphere in the ground that night. Um, there's also some bad memories, getting walloped uh, 6-0 by Crystal Palace in 87, yeah. being beaten 7-0 by Liverpool in an FA Cup replay in, I think, 2006.
0: I remember that, yeah. And well, also, one question I've not asked you, sorry and to interrupt you, is were, were you there in 85 for the Leeds game when there was the in May no, 85?
1: No, I remember... The The game before, I can't remember who we were playing, but by that time, me and my dad used to stand pretty much on the halfway line, halfway up the cop, And dad was looking at the match programme and he was saying, oh, it's Leeds on the final day. Do you want to go? And I remember saying, no, dad, because I knew about the reputation of both sets of fans. Yeah. Birmingham and Leeds fans at that time did not like each other and there was more than likely going to be trouble. And, Yes, uh, as it turned out, that was the day not only of the extraordinary tragedy of the Bradford fire at Valley That's Parade, right, yeah. but also of the wall collapsing on the young boy at St Andrews during the course of violence yeah. between rival fans. And that young boy also lost his life. So I think no, it was his
0: first ever game as well. I yeah,
1: think. yeah. And, and you know, uh, I, I knew that something was likely to happen. Um, uh, and, you know, I've seen games where there's been violent. There was a cup game against West Ham in the early nineties where there were pitch battles in the streets. It was hideous trying to get away from, from all of that stuff. I nearly got trampled on by a police horse trying to get away from the, the trouble that was brewing at the Tilton road. end. just to just turned a corner, this police horse was coming straight at me at full pelt. Jesus, how I, I still don't know how I got out of the way of this horse right. that was going, must've been going 30 mile an hour. To get to, you know, try and quell this trouble. Um, but I also do remember another game in the early 90s against Swindon Town on an Easter bank holiday where Birmingham went 4 1 up early in the second half through Andy Savile with a yeah, brilliant him. goal at the Tilton Road end. And that was the point at which Glenn Hoddle, then playing for Swindon, decided to move himself into midfield at 4 1 down. Final score, Birmingham 4, Swindon Town 6. <laughs> and Glenn Hoddle just put on a masterclass, even in his later years as a player. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a, an RC striker who looked like Eric Clapton called David Mitchell. Yeah, I remember scored, him as
0: well, yeah.
1: Scored a hat-trick in that that flurry of goals that Swindon scored past us. And, um, yeah, that was a a memory for, a, for all the wrong reasons, I, I guess you could say. But there's... You know, nights and days where we've won promotion, like in the mid-80s. Uh, I think Andy Kennedy scored us a goal that got promotion. We never won the title to get into the top flight. Whenever we won promotion for the old second division, what is now the championship, it was always as one of the other promoted teams. We never went up as champions from that that league. Um, so we were always a bit precarious in terms of making sure we got over the line. But... Um, I you know just as many good memories as bad. Even though obviously Birmingham as a club have, have not had brilliant times throughout my lifetime, that doesn't really matter. the the, the, the few ups are, are well worth it to experience the many downs that counter it.
0: Of course, of course. Now you've obviously talked about Trevor Francis. He was your first hero. Is there another player that? you look back on as well as being maybe not as big a hero as Trevor Francis, but someone else that you, maybe a cult hero more than a, a I, star.
1: Yeah, I, I would nominate at this point, John Frain. Oh yeah, I remember him, yeah. Who was a, after the era of Pat Vandenhow, Mark Dennis, Julian Dix, as completely psychotic left-backs, <laughs> was actually a, a far more level-headed fullback. In our number three position,
0: was he quite? Was he good and at free kicks was, and things like that?
1: Sorry, did he take free kicks as well? Yes, he did. Yes. And there's <laughs> a, there's, there's, a, there's a real good end to this story. Uh, on that note, but John was uh, the steadiest of Eddies at fullback, and I I remember starting a Franey for England chant, <laughs> uh, which was never going to happen because there were so many great left backs in front of him at the time. But I I really really loved. John Frain's consistency. Uh, He he took penalties. Um, He represented Birmingham brilliantly. He was a local boy, I think, but he never won anything with us. But he then went to Northampton Town later in his career. And one of his, well, his possibly his career highlight was a free kick winner for Northampton in a playoff final at Wembley in the last minute that sent Northampton up um, and again much as it was with Trevor Francis scoring that header for Nottingham Forest in the European Cup final uh, I was so thrilled for Northampton Town but more especially for John that he'd had a moment like that in his yeah. career because if ever a player deserved a moment like that it was Franey Football does that to
0: you Ian it's incredible it doesn't matter you know it's the player that you know either didn't quite make it or it didn't work out or a player that was a big fan favourite when they go somewhere else and obviously not playing for your direct rivals, but you share that happiness with them when they have them big moments, I think. I think that's something that's quite unique to football.
1: Absolutely. There, there, there'll be more than than, than John Frain. Stan Lazaridis was a, was a cult hero and a brilliant player for both Trevor Francis and Steve Bruce. He was part of the squad that won... Promotion to the Premier League through the playoffs in 2002. 10 years later, we held a dinner for that promotion squad at Edgebaston, the home of Warwickshire County Cricket Club. And Stan, who was back in Australia by this point, paid his own airfare to come over and be part of the celebrations. He wanted no part of having his ticket paid for. He, you know, booked his return flights through Qantas or whatever and came over. And I think even though Jeff Horsfield and Darren Carter were there that night, I think the biggest roar when the players were all introduced by me into the room one by one, the biggest roar was reserved for Stan.
0: Well, I mean, that's that says a lot about him as a person then to, to do that and to be there, just to be there first of all, but then just to say no,
1: I'm funding
0: it myself. There's a lot about yeah. him as well, doesn't it? So
1: Yeah, lovely man. Absolutely oh. lovely man. and And that squad was, again, full of brilliant characters like um Jeff Kenner, Jeff Horsfield. Yeah. You also had Darren Carter, Michael Johnson, Paul Devlin, brilliant, Ian Bennett, the goalkeeper, brilliant, yeah. fun character. Good goalkeeper Ian Bennett was, yeah. Fantastic. Well, he was Barry Fry's first signing from Peterborough. And I don't think he made a better signing. I, he, yeah. Of course, as as we've already talked about, Gary, he made about three million other signings. Yeah. Mostly strikers. But you could argue, along with Steve Claridge and maybe Liam Daesh, that his best signing was probably Benno.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely um, a good goalkeeper
1: that probably very underrated outside of the club, I think. Yeah, he claimed he was six foot, but that's an evil lie. He wasn't six foot Benno, but <laughs> he more than made up for the fact that he wasn't a big physical specimen by being a truly tremendous shot stopper and he yep. was brave on crosses. You know, yep. he, he had the lot, Benno. Yeah, he was. He was a good goalkeeper. He was. Yeah.
0: Ian, that was tremendous. Thank you so much for sharing all those stories about your support of Birmingham and throughout your career. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much again and good luck for everything you do. It's been a real pleasure for me.
1: That's very kind, Gary. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being part of your show.
0: Thank you very much. Take care and see you soon. Bye. All right. Cheers. A huge thanks to Ian Dante there for joining me today on Retro Football Network podcast. Really enjoyed that. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thanks very much for sharing your stories and memories again with us. Brilliant stuff. If you enjoyed that, there's more to come. Please just click on subscribe. And then you'll be sure and you won't miss a single episode of this podcast. I've already got other guests lined up. Um, We've got some very interesting people that I'm sure will take you back and um, you can relive some of your, your past football memories as well. Thanks a lot. Time for me to go. See you next time. Bye.